You are now listening to The Last Day's Return of the Historic Faith with your host, Pastor Jeremy Anderson and Brother Matthew Marcel. This podcast is for the kingdom Christian in the end times. As aliens in a foreign land and ambassadors of our king, we proudly fly the flag with the cross as we sing. Blessed be the name of the Lord. ...is the teaching of the Lord, apostles to the nations. The work never claims to be the product of one author, or even directly of twelve apostolic authors. Rather, the long version of the title indicates that it was considered to be a faithful conveying of the teaching of Jesus through his apostles to the church throughout the world. There is no narrower audience specified. However, there are two theories as to the first generation of recipients. The first theory is that it was initially received by an Egyptian audience because Clement of Alexandria and Athanasius later referred to it favorably in that region. However, its Jewish style and instructions for baptisms in desert communities has led scholars to prefer a Syrian destination. There's no way to determine a precise date for the original document, but AD 100 is reasonable. It appears after the epistles of Barnabas and Clement and before Ignatius's epistles in its most famous codex, Hierosolimitanus, a full Greek text discovered by the 1873 metropolitan of Nicomedia named Philotheos Brynios. When he published the Didache in 1883, patristic scholars around the world were excited. The Didache had been known about, but the discovery of a full Greek text renewed interest in early church history. Fragments of the Didache, which were translated into Latin, Syriac, Coptic, Ethiopian, and Georgian, indicate the Didache enjoyed widespread distribution throughout the Christian world. The Didache is essentially an early church manual, which addressed practical morality, the way church services and Christian life should be conducted, and a reminder of the imminent return of Jesus Christ to the world. It begins with the Document of the Two Ways, which also, in a slightly different form, appears in the Epistle of Barnabas. This led historical theologian Justo Gonzalez to suggest that the Didache and the Epistle of Barnabas were using the same earlier document and modifying it for their own usages. The Way to Life contains positive instructions to love, bless, fast, give, remember and honor God, hold on to good teaching, and to be meek, long-suffering, blameless, gentle, and good. The Way to Death, on the other hand, is filled with all kinds of sins and character flaws that Christians should avoid. The Didache lists 40 specific sins as examples. The Two Ways makes much use of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7 through and the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. The Didache next addresses a series of regular practices in the churches. For example, Christians ought to be careful not to eat food sacrificed to idols, which was a controversy first raised in the Gentile churches in Acts 15 and 1 Corinthians 10. Regarding baptism, the Didache instructs baptismal candidates, their families, and anyone else who was able to, to fast for one or two days ahead of time. Baptisms were to be done in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and in running water. However, if running water was not available, then it would be acceptable to baptize in other water, or even to pour water over the candidate's head. Cold water were preferred in baptisms instead of warm water. <laughs> Regarding fasting, the Didache instructs Christians to fast on Wednesdays and Fridays every week, instead of on Mondays and Thursdays as the Jews did. This would help to distinguish the Christians from the Jews. Regarding prayer, the Didache instructs Christians to pray the Lord's Prayer three times each day. Regarding the Eucharist, the Didache gives specific prayers which should be offered when sharing the cup and when sharing the broken bread. The cup and bread should only be shared with people who have been baptized. A third specific prayer is to be recited after the people are filled with the cup and bread. As for how often the Eucharist should be offered, it was entirely up to each of the local prophets who were leading each congregation. Regarding specific titles of local church positions and who should hold them legitimately, the Didache identifies teachers, apostles, prophets, bishops, and deacons. Teachers were to be listened to carefully. 
If they taught false or new doctrines, the teachers were to be ignored. Apostles, not referring to the original twelve, but to traveling representatives of the church, were to be taken care of for a day or two at most, but then the apostles were to be sent on their way to continue the Lord's work, lest they grow dependent on free food, lodging, or money. Prophets, likewise, were to be examined on the basis of their actions. If their teaching matched their actions, they were to be accepted. However, if they asked for money for themselves, they were merely false prophets and should be rejected. Genuine prophets who are willing to live in one place should be treated like the priests of the Old Testament era by being offered a tenth of whatever food, objects, or money people have to share with them. A bishop is an overseer of a local church, and a deacon is a servant of the Christians in a local church. Bishops and deacons were to be chosen because of their integrity, meekness, and honesty. All people occupying these positions, who are people of good character, should be honored by the church. Notice that the word presbyter, or elder, is not used in the Didache, even though the word presbyter was used in the other extant Christian writings of that era. Regarding meeting on every Sunday, also known as the Lord's Day, the Didache instructs Christians to confess their sins and address personal problems with other Christians prior to breaking bread and giving thanks together every Sunday. The Apostolic Fathers is a term assigned to leaders and writers in the early church era who had been in contact with or were taught by one or more of Jesus' apostles. The era from the death of John, the last apostle, to the death of Polycarp, John's longest living apostle, is also called the sub-apostolic era and lasted from about AD 98 to 155. This first generation of early church fathers is held in high esteem because their writings reflect the teaching of the apostles before councils, creeds, and extensive hierarchy developed in the church. The two main pastoral concerns reflected in the writing of the apostolic fathers were unity among Christians in the churches and establishing a good moral reputation in the world. Though a formal church hierarchy was something to be developed later, a leader in the Roman church named Clement is credited with writing a letter on behalf of the Roman church to their fellow Christians in the Corinthian church. Little is known of Clement of Rome other than what appears in the letter itself. Although the letter does not explicitly bear his own name, he does mention that he was a disciple of Peter and Paul, but does not consider himself on the level of the apostles. Church historians recognize Clement as the fourth overseer of the Roman church, following the apostle Peter and two other overseers. Much later tradition suggests that Clement traveled to Palestine, wrote many books, and became a martyr by drowning while attached to an anchor in the Black Sea. According to this narrative, angels built Clement a tomb underwater, and once a year the people of that area were able to see it by the ebbing of the tide. The letter, or epistle, to the Corinthians was probably written in about AD 96. According to the first paragraph, it is the Roman church's response to the Corinthian church's inquiry about what to do following an incident in which some younger people caused an uproar and had some of their church presbyters, or elders, removed from their positions. Now to be clear, there was no single building that housed all the Christian congregations either in Rome or in Corinth. The first dedicated church building was not founded until the middle of the third century. Up until this time, all churches met in houses or other places that had many other uses besides as a religious meeting place for Christians. Therefore, this may have been limited to leaders of certain house churches in Corinth or for any local council the leaders may have held. At the outset of the letter, Clement assumes the guilt of the few rash and self-confident persons. He identifies the underlying sin as envy and proceeds to give a list of scriptural examples of envy, including Cain, Esau, Joseph's brothers, and several others. He also blamed envy for the deaths of Christian martyrs, including Peter, Paul, and a great multitude of the elect. He urged the rash youth to humble themselves and repent, which would imitate the humility, faithfulness, and hospitality of a host of biblical characters. His emphasis was on the equality of all members of the Corinthian church, regardless of age or gender. Added to the reasons for loving one another was the expectation that Jesus would return soon, and those who had died would be resurrected by the Almighty God. Clement identifies arrogance as a trait of those cursed by God, but moderation and humility as being traits of those blessed by God. As for leaders in the Corinthian church, the Roman church through Clement suggested that everyone in the Corinthian church should be content with whatever roles they have, since leaders need followers and followers need leaders. He described this as a mutual advantage, reminiscent of Paul's teaching on the body of Christ in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians.
Clement further encouraged the Corinthian Christians to do everything in an orderly fashion, as God himself created and regulated the universe and his people to perform tasks at proper times and in proper ways. Clement had in mind the proper replacement of elders in the church, which, as set in motion by the apostles, included elders serving terms of leadership for life, and new leaders being appointed only by the consent of the whole church. Clement reminded the Corinthian Christians that their tendency toward divisiveness was something Paul had already addressed by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Paul's first epistle to them. In closing, Clement enjoined the Corinthian Christians to prioritize love and to repent as the occasions might warrant, for in the end, it is better for you that you should occupy a humble but honorable place in the flock of Christ than that, being highly exalted, you should be cast out from the hope of his people. The best transitions of leadership in the church or elsewhere are those that happen peaceably with love and humility. Thank you for watching this video. Don't forget to like and share, and make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future videos. At the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea, one will find the city of Antioch, a few miles inland on the Orontes River. It is in a very important location because it links the eastern and western worlds. There was no important city located there until the Greeks conquered the area in the 4th century AD. When the Greeks conquered a new area, they brought their culture, art, architecture, philosophy, and religion to the region. The process of making a new area Greek is called Hellenization. The Greeks Hellenized the new cities in their empire. The Greeks built buildings in classical Greek style in Antioch, and it soon became an important city to trade, politics, and religion that connected the Eastern and Western worlds. In 64 BC, General Pompey of the Roman army captured the city of Antioch from the Greeks, and it remained an important city in the Roman Empire for many centuries. One can imagine the variety of religious conversations overheard in the city streets from the Greeks, Romans, Egyptians, and Phoenicians who established their places of worship throughout the city. Add to the mix a few Eastern cults and no small number of Hellenistic Jews who were brought to the city or migrated there when it was still controlled by the Greeks. It was a truly cosmopolitan city, which reflected the cultural and religious diversity of its population, but all under Roman rule. Following the martyrdom of Stephen in Jerusalem in the mid-30s AD, many followers of Jesus migrated northward to Antioch to take refuge there. Acts 8.1 and 11.19 This is where followers of Jesus were first called Christians. Acts 11.26 The earliest and most well-known Christian missionary work of the first century had its genesis in Antioch. Paul and Barnabas were sent out by the Church of Antioch to the northern Mediterranean world. Paul's three missionary journeys and his trip to Rome were responsible for the spread of Christianity to the Jews and Gentiles around the Roman Empire. By the end of the first century, Antioch had a population of 300,000 making it the third largest city in the Roman Empire, many of whom were Christians. It was not only an important city to the empire, but to Christianity in its earliest and most vulnerable stage. Christians in Antioch were among the most persecuted Christians in the Roman Empire. Some well-known monastic communities also spread east from Antioch. Before and after Christianity became the legal and eventually official religion of the Roman Empire in the fourth century, Antioch was recognized as one of the major centers of Christianity. It boasted a robust theological school to train people for ministry that rivaled the theological schools in Alexandria and Carthage. Since the city's population was so big, its location so crucial to the exchange of ideas, and its school so influential, the bishops of Antioch would wield significant influence over matters of church doctrine for centuries to come in the early church era. Along with Rome, Constantinople, Alexandria, and Jerusalem, the city of Antioch was crucial to the growth and direction of Christian life and thought. Thank you for watching this video. To keep Theology Academy videos free, please consider making a tax-deductible donation at www.theology-academy.org donate. Toward the end of the first century AD, Ignatius became the third overseer, or bishop, of the churches in Antioch at the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea. 
His bishopric also included the churches in the region of Syria. There was no central church building in Antioch or Syria. The church was made up of a series of house churches around town and throughout the countryside. While the exact date of Ignatius' birth is uncertain, historians believe it was either in AD 30 or 35. He had such a close relationship with God that he was given the nickname Theophorus, which means one who bears God. A much later tradition changed the Greek slightly to Theophorus, which means one whom God bears. The claim was thus made that Ignatius was the little child whom Jesus placed on his lap in the 18th chapter of Matthew. Thus it was later held that God in the flesh bore Ignatius on his knee. It is a sweet story, but it is not found in the earliest literature by or about Ignatius. By describing Ignatius' birth during Jesus' ministry, the story does demonstrate that Ignatius was likely in his 70s when he was arrested and put on trial in Antioch before Emperor Trajan himself, or before one of his emissaries. Though nothing is known about the trial itself, Christians in that era were often brought before a magistrate or governor, questioned along with witnesses as to if they really were Christians, and then punished accordingly. The result of the trial is that Ignatius was found guilty of being a Christian, and therefore sentenced to death. Most of what is known to us about the life and beliefs of Ignatius come from his seven letters, or epistles, written to six churches and to Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna. These seven letters were written in about AD 107, when Ignatius was escorted by Roman soldiers from Antioch to Rome. While he was on his way to Rome, he was visited by many Christians who were guilty of the same crime of which Ignatius had been convicted, simply being a Christian. His first major stop along the way was in the town of Smyrna, where Polycarp was the bishop. From that location, Ignatius wrote letters to the churches in Ephesus, Magnesia, and Tralis, which lay to the south of Smyrna. He also sent another letter ahead to Rome. When he arrived at Troas, he wrote letters to the churches in Philadelphia and Smyrna, as well as to their bishop, Polycarp. How did Ignatius die? His epistle to the Romans indicates that he was anticipated being attacked by wild beasts in the Roman Colosseum for the entertainment of the crowds. Ignatius heard that some Christians in Rome were planning to rescue him in some way, so he would not have to endure a martyr's death. However, he pleaded with them, not to show an untimely kindness to me. Allow me to become food for the wild beasts, through whom I will be allowed to make it to God. I am the wheat of God. Let me be ground by the teeth of the wild beasts, so I may be found to be the pure bread of the Christ. Ignatius believed that if he died in Christ, so also Ignatius would be raised in Christ in his own resurrection into heaven. While it may sound strange today to hear of a Christian wishing to die for his faith, Ignatius set an example for the early church by going so far as to say, May I enjoy the wild beasts who are prepared for me. I want them to rush upon me, and I will urge them to do devour me quickly. Ignatius was not suicidal. He was wanting the Roman Christians to not interfere with his martyrdom. So as he had lived for Christ faithfully, Ignatius might also die for Christ faithfully. Polycarp received word of Ignatius' successful martyrdom. Ignatius would be revered in all corners of the Christian church throughout her history as a holy example of one who bore God faithfully in his life, death, and writings. Following his martyrdom, Ignatius' bones were brought back to Antioch and eventually returned to Rome. His faithfulness is celebrated in the West on October 17th and in the East on both December 17th and 20th. Thank you for watching this video. To keep Theology Academy videos free, please consider making a tax-deductible donation at www.theology-academy.org donate. When Ignatius, Bishop of Antioch, was sentenced to death in AD 107, he was escorted from Antioch to Rome to be martyred. Along the way, he was visited by Christians who encouraged him and brought reports of how their churches were doing. Ignatius wrote six letters or epistles to some of these churches and a letter to Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna. The letters had several themes in common, but the most important theme was church unity. According to Ignatius, the most important thing for the churches to do to maintain unity was to treat their own leaders with honor. The bishop of each city's churches should be honored and obeyed like God himself. The presbyters or elders should be honored and obeyed like the apostles, and the deacons should be treated with honor too. Although it was important for every Christian to honor one another, 
Honoring and obeying church leaders was important to the unity of the church. Ignatius recognized two hindrances to this unity among the churches. One was heresy, or incorrect doctrinal teaching, especially about the person of Jesus Christ. During Ignatius's day, a heretical group called the Docetists infiltrated the church. The Docetists believed Jesus was fully God, but they could not imagine his being fully human. They taught that Jesus only seemed to be human, but like a ghost, he was too spiritual to be a fully physical being. Ignatius warned his Christian friends to beware of false teaching and instead embrace the full humanity and divinity of Jesus. The other hindrance to unity among a city's churches was separatism, or believing that there could be factions within each city's churches who operate separately from the bishop. Ignatius advised Christians not to do anything apart from their bishops because they were all a part of the same body of believers. While unity within each city's churches was the most important theme in Ignatius's letters, he also emphasized the importance of good behavior. He taught that people with bad doctrine behave badly and people with good doctrine should behave well and worthy of the name of Christ. In other words, the fruit people bear is indicative of what kind of doctrine they hold, and God will judge all people, both good and bad, in the end. This good behavior would not only promote unity within the church, but also would pave the way for the world's hearing and seeing the gospel lived out in the lives of the church. One letter Ignatius wrote is different from the other six because it is written to Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna. It was like a letter from an older bishop to a younger one. As a fellow bishop, Ignatius encouraged Polycarp to press on and keep doing his ministry carefully. In Polycarp's efforts to bear the struggles of all, Ignatius urged Polycarp not only to pay attention to the needs of the good disciples, but also of those who are more troublesome too. When heretics might try to persuade Polycarp of their views, he should stand firm, as does an anvil that is hammered. Ignatius encouraged Polycarp to care for the widows and slaves in his congregation, and encouraged slaves, wives, husbands, and single people to be content in their relationship with God. While the letter was written to Polycarp, Ignatius knew Polycarp's congregation would be listening in on the details, so he reminded them to do all things, including marriage, with the approval of their bishop, paying attention to him in all things, and not deserting him or the church. Rather, they should be patient with one another, humility, as God is patient with them. Although Ignatius was facing the end of his life, his emphasis was on the unity of the church, which should be centered on the leadership of local churches and an accurate understanding of Jesus Christ. Ignatius's pleas for Christians to live in truth and good behavior continue to be emphases of the church throughout the centuries. Thank you for watching this video. To keep Theology Academy videos free, please consider making a tax-deductible donation at www.theology-academy.org donate. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna from the early to middle 2nd century AD. He himself was discipled by the Apostle John and heard the testimony of others who had seen Jesus Christ personally. Polycarp provided a wealth of information from those who had seen Jesus to future generations of Christians in the 2nd century. The Church of Smyrna had a biblical history as she was directly addressed by John churches in the 2nd and 3rd chapters of the Book of Revelation in AD 95. The Christians in Smyrna had already undergone some tribulation because of their faith and were about to face a more intense persecution soon. In AD 107, Ignatius, Bishop of Antioch, visited Polycarp in Smyrna as Ignatius was on his way to Rome to be martyred. Ignatius soon after wrote a letter to Polycarp, encouraging him in his pastoral duties to call all people to be saved, praying for all, bearing with all, and preserving unity in the church among those who are more difficult. The letter also encouraged Polycarp to stand firm against those who spread heresy and to give proper attention to specific church, like widows, slaves, men, women, single people, and married people. Ignatius wrote as an older bishop to Polycarp, a younger bishop, to encourage him in his ministry in Smyrna. At the same time, Ignatius wrote a letter to the Smyrnaeans to promote unity among Christians in Polycarp's church and warn them against the evils of Docetism and related heresy. Docetists claimed that Jesus was fully God but only seemed to be physical, thus denying his full humanity. Exercising good behavior, remaining unified with each other through the bishop, repelling heresy were three of the most common themes of the writings of the Apostolic Fathers. 
or those who personally had been taught by the apostles. If Polycarp was like a father to the Christians in Smyrna, then Ignatius's letter to the Smyrnaeans must have sounded like grandfatherly advice to them. One known event in Polycarp's life was his visit to Rome with their archbishop, Anicetus, to discuss exactly when Easter should be celebrated in the churches. The Eastern churches were celebrating Easter on the 14th of Nisan, or the same day that the Jews celebrated the Passover. No matter what day of the week, the Western churches were celebrating Easter on the first Sunday following the Passover because it was the day of the week on which Jesus rose from the dead. When the two bishops region of the church to celebrate Easter when each saw fit. While Polycarp was in Rome, he also was approached by the Gnostic heretic Marcion, who asked if Polycarp recognized him. Polycarp answered, I recognize, I recognize the son of Satan. While Polycarp spoke kindly to Western Christians who disagreed with the traditions of Eastern Christians, he had no patience with Ritz. During an athletic festival at Smyrna in AD 155, Polycarp was arrested, tried, and martyred for his faith. The church in Smyrna wrote an account of the proceedings to the church in Philomelium in Phia. This was the first detailed account of a martyrdom in the early church since Luke's account of Stephen's martyrdom 120 years earlier in Acts 6 through 8. If they did not worship the emperor, Following the martyrdom of Germanicus, an elderly Smyrnian Christian, the mob cried out for Polycarp to be tried too. Members of the church convinced Polycarp to hide at first. However, after a week of hiding in a few different places, a young boy, under torture, reported Polycarp's location, who then simply awaited to be arrested by a local official named Herod. Polycarp was tried before the preconsul, Statius Quadratus, in the city stadium before a mob of Jews and heathen hecklers. When the preconsul asked Polycarp to swear by the fortune of Caesar and revile Christ, Polycarp answered, 86 years I have served him, and he never did me wrong. How then can I blaspheme my church? When the preconsul threatened Polycarp with a martyr's fire, Polycarp answered, You threaten me with a fire that burns for an hour, and after a little while is extinguished, but you do not know about the fire of the coming judgment of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why do you wait? Bring on what you will. A herald announced to the mob that Polycarp admitted to being a and the mob cried out for Polycarp to be burned at the stake. The mob gathered wood to be used in Polycarp's execution by burning, but as they approached him with nails to nail him to the wood, as was their custom, he said, Leave me as I am, for he who gives me strength to endure the fire will also enable me without fat hands like a sheep to be sacrificed. He then said, Amen, and the fire was lit. However, the fire, though blazing around him fully, miraculously could not seem to burn his body. This so frustrated the mob that the execution... Witnesses claimed a dove flew out from his body, and the amount of blood that poured out was so great that it put out the fire. This left the mob wondering how significant the difference was between the bodies of those who were Christians and those who were not. As Christian friends of Polycarp sought to remove his body for a proper burial, mob believed the friends intended to worship Polycarp's corpse. The executioner then burned the body, leaving only the bones behind to be put in a fitting place. Polycarp was at the epicenter of the early church in that he had heard the testimony of those who saw Jesus Christ personally, including the apostles, and especially the apostle John. Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, from Ignatius's visit in AD 107 until Polycarp's martyrdom in 155. He left a clear testimony of an apostolic father who taught and lived out proper behavior and theology. The most noteworthy of Polycarp's disciples was Irenaeus, who became one of the church's leading defenders of the faith in Lee. Thank you for watching this video. Don't forget to like and share, and make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future videos. was Bishop of Smyrna from the early to middle 2nd century AD. He had a good relationship with members of other churches in the region. This was common among the Apostolic Fathers, that is, those who personally hadn't. In about AD 98, Clement of Rome wrote an epistle to the church in Corinth on behalf of his church, and Ignatius of Antioch wrote epistles to six
other churches in 107. In addition to his epistle addressed to Polycarp, these eight epistles are still extant, that is, still in existence, but they are heard to by ancient writers that have been lost. Writing epistles to other churches was a common practice among the apostolic fathers, and they normally emphasized good behavior, church unity, and correct doctrine, especially about who Jesus Christ is. We do have copies of an epistle that Polycarp wrote to the church of Philippi in Macedonia. The date of its writing is difficult to discern, but scholars believe it may have been written shortly after the death of Ignatius, which was in AD 107, and circulated among the churches with Ignatius. Polycarp's epistle was first mentioned by Irenaeus and was still in use among the eastern churches in Jerome's day. It contains many allusions to scripture, especially from the Gospel of Matthew, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 2nd Timothy, Hebrews, 1st Peter, and 1st John. The most remarkable feature of Polycarp's epistle is not what it contains, but what it does not contain. There is no mention in the epistle of a single bishop or overseer of the church in Philippi, nor does Polycarp refer to himself as one. Possibly addresses the presbyters, or elders, deacons, husbands, wives, widows, young men, young women, who are not leaders in the church, and the members of the church in general. However, there is no mention of a specific bishop of the church at the time of the epistle's writing. As was the case with other epistles written by the apostolic Polycarp's letter to the Philippians contains exhortations for Christians to behave well. Polycarp encouraged all the Philippian churches to exercise faith, hope, and especially love toward God and their neighbors. He exhorted them to be good, truthful, knowledgeable of God, pure and blameless, compassionate, patient, sober, and to fear God. He emphasized the traits of faith, love, truth, and purity to young men and young women in the church. Widows were to be people of noble character, avoiding slander, lying, and greed. He also publicly rebuked a former elder named Valens by name. Apparently Valens and his wife became greedy and turned their backs on purity and the truth for their selfish ends. Even then, Polycarp called on the members of the church to repent and return to the church. So at worst, they would be considered church members who suffered and strayed, but hopefully in the end would reconcile with the church. Good behavior was not only good for relationships within the church, but the church's reputation with outsiders as well. A second emphasis in the epistle was church unity. Polycarp encouraged, for example, to attempt to bring back those who strayed from the church, and not to neglect the widows, orphans, or poor within the church. He also enjoined the Christians in general to love the family of God, join together in pursuit of the truth, to be gentle in their conversations toward one another, to be subject to one another, and to despise no one, are profitable not only for relationships within the church, but the church's reputation with outsiders. A third emphasis in the epistle is a proper understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Polycarp reserved his sternest speech for heretics who claimed Jesus Christ has not come in the flesh. Polycarp is likely referring to a group of Gnostics not of Jesus. Polycarp warned, whoever does not confess that Jesus Christ came in the flesh is an antichrist. Whoever does not confess the testimony of the cross is of the devil. And whoever perverts the words of the Lord for their own desires and says that there is neither a resurrection nor a final judgment is the firstborn child of Satan. Proper behavior, proper doctrine should lead to church unity and an effective Christian testimony. This is a good reminder, even for Christians today. Thank you for watching this video. To keep Theology Academy videos free, please consider making a tax donation at www.theology-academy.org donate. The anonymous Epistle of Barnabas is one of the earliest Christian writings of the sub-apostolic era. It has the title, a letter, and a sermon. The author, recipients, location, and date of the epistle are a mystery. The name of the author is not explicitly mentioned in the epistle. The author claims not to be a teacher, but certainly writes like one. Clement of Alexandria supposed the author was the Apostle Barnabas, Paul's missionary, which may account for the title of the epistle, but the general consensus today is that the author wrote later than Barnabas's lifetime. 
The identity of the recipients also remains a mystery, but they were praised for their Christian goodness and love in the introductory section. There is no mention of the location of the epistle's author or recipients. However, most scholars suggest Alexandria because of the epistle's strong use of an allegorical interpretation of scripture, which was common in Alexandrian literary and religious education at the time. Guesses as to the date of the epistle range from AD 70 to 200, but the epistle was most likely written sometime in the early 130s. The author mentioned that the epistle was written in order that the readers might have, along with their faith, a perfect knowledge of the doctrines of the Lord. The epistle consists of two clear sections. Chapters 1 through 17 are doctrinal in nature and serve to form an explanation of the superiority of Christianity over Judaism. Chapters 18 through 21 are subtitled The Two Ways and are practical in nature. A variation of the two ways was also found in the Didache, an earlier Christian instruction manual. This has led some scholars to suppose that the two ways might have been a separate Hebrew document that predated both the Epistle of Barnabas and the Didache. Overall, the allegorical or symbolic approach of the epistle has the feel of an apology against the Jewish interpretation of scriptures and Jewish law practiced as it was in that day. The matter was urgent because the days are evil and Satan possesses the power of the world. The main section of the epistle notes that God did not need sacrifices like the pagans offered their gods and the Jews offered theirs. As David said in Psalm 51, God desires a broken spirit rather than animal sacrifices. God's people were told in the Old Testament to avoid eating certain foods because of the sin each unclean animal represented in their own natural habitats, especially pigs. However, God desired humility rather than legalistic fasting and hearts that welcomed his spiritual presence rather than a temple to welcome his physical presence. While God intended to give the covenant to Israel through Moses, the people chose to make a golden calf. Their sin of idolatry resulted in God's choice to give Christians the covenant later through Jesus Christ. Even Jacob's blessing of his younger grandson, Ephraim, instead of the older Manasseh, was a symbol of God's blessing the younger Christians over the older Jews in the giving and living of the covenant. Though there may have been ignorance in the ancient Hebrew world about God, the prophets prophesied about Jesus Christ, and eventually, he revealed himself to be the Son of God. Goats, sheep, calves, circumcision, wood, water, and other items mentioned in the Old Testament all pointed to Jesus Christ. He was both the giver of the sacrifice and the sacrifice itself. The Jews misunderstood their Christ because of their wickedness, but now Christians know better because God forgave their sins on the cross of Jesus Christ. As was the case in Paul's epistles, the epistle of Barnabas established a doctrinal basis for faith and life and then provided practical advice for living out this doctrine. The practical advice took the form of the two ways. The way of light includes the better behaviors to imitate, and the way of darkness includes the worse behaviors to avoid. Essentially, the two ways teaches live according to the light by having good thoughts and actions and avoid a life of darkness that includes bad thoughts and actions. The epistle concludes with a reminder that the second coming of Jesus is near, so the readers ought to live in wisdom, intelligence, understanding, and knowledge of God's judgments. This way, they will be ready for the final judgment day. That day will be coming soon, according to the epistle, because the six days of creation correspond to 6,000 years, the Sabbath day to the current millennium, and the eighth day, a symbol of the day on which Jesus Christ resurrected, will be the beginning of the future life and heaven. In summary, the Christian doctrines and way of life are superior to the Jewish doctrines and way of life because Christians are forgiven of their sins through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, which comes with the benefit of understanding spiritual matters in a deeper, allegorical, or spiritual sense. Though the author, recipients, location, and date of this epistle remain a mystery, it clearly serves an important purpose to our understanding today of how Christians attempted to distinguish themselves from their Jewish counterparts in the early second century. Thank you for watching this video. To keep Theology Academy videos free, please consider making a tax-deductible donation at www.theology-academy.org donate.
The anonymous epistle to Diognetus is one of the most beautiful and noble defenses of the Christian faith in the early 2nd century AD. It is by nature an early apologetic work. It's early because it refers to Christianity as still being a new thing in the world, and it's an apologetic because of its use of classical rhetoric to argue for specific points to explain and defend the Christian faith, distinguishing it from paganism and Judaism. The exact author, recipient, and location of the letter are unknown. The author of the work did not identify himself by name, but he did refer to himself as a disciple of the apostles and teacher of the Gentiles. The recipient was referred to as Diognetus, which some scholars have identified with a Stoic philosopher by the same name who tutored the young Emperor Marcus Aurelius. However, Diognetus was a fairly common name in that era, so it could have been addressed to anyone who would receive a well-polished apologetic work from a master rhetorician. While there are no extant manuscripts of the document today, the only Greek manuscript was destroyed in a fire in the 19th century. Fortunately, printers have made multiple transcriptions of this manuscript in the 16th century that serve as the source for current translations. From the introduction of the epistle, it appears that Diognetus had previously asked the author to answer five main questions. 1. How do Christians worship God? 2. Who is this God in whom they trust? 3. Why do they not fear death? 4. What is this brotherly love they show toward each other? 5. Why is Christianity a new religion and not much older? On his way to answering these five questions, the author argued for the superiority of Christianity to paganism and Judaism. The folly of paganism was its worshipping idols made by humans from physical materials. Idols made from precious metals had to be guarded by their faithful worshippers to keep them from being stolen. It is no sign of a strong deity who cannot protect themselves from thieves. The Jews were offering sacrifices to God with the mindset that God needed those sacrifices. The Christians understood that God needed nothing. He created the heavens and the earth himself and freely gave people the same things they offered to him as sacrifices on their altar. The author referred to Jewish practices related to Sabbaths, fasting, new moons, and physical circumcision as superstitions. Christians, on the other hand, are international, yet familial. They are not limited to a single country, language, or style of dress. Rather, they live in various countries, speak various languages, and wear what was fitting in their own social context. Yet they prioritize their faith and thus know what it feels like to be foreigners in their own countries. Christians are to the world what the soul is to the body. The author also described God as a singular deity, not a human system or a set of man-made mysteries. Rather, God sent the Word, who himself is the creator of all things, as a messenger to people. The Word came into the world, neither to compel submission through violence nor to judge them, but instead to persuade people by calling them to God. The fruit of this approach can be seen in Christians not fearing death, but rather willingly submitting themselves to persecution because God gave them the power to do so. God sent his Son, the Word of God, at just the right time. God gave people time to explain their own theories of who he is and then prove them wrong by sending his own beloved son. Though he appeared to neglect people, in his son he gave all the blessings he had previously withheld. Finally, after people had been convinced that they could not earn their salvation by their own works, God sent his son to be the savior of those who trust in him. People who trust in God, a. gain a true knowledge of who he is, b. become citizens of the kingdom of heaven, c. increase their capacity to love and be kind, d. are able to begin speaking of the mysteries of God, E. Love and admire those who suffer persecution because they will not deny God. F. Condemn the lies and errors of the world. And G. Will know what it is like to live in heaven. Through these ideas, the author answered the main questions of Diognetus. The last two chapters of the epistle formed its epilogue. Some believe the epilogue was written by a later author or commentator to continue the ideas of the original author. The last two chapters do have a different style and structure from the previous ten chapters. The epilogue reaffirmed the importance of learning and believing the truth about God and His Son. Even though the Son appeared as a new revelation to people, He existed from the beginning and gives all things to the Church. The Church is animated in its life by the will of God. 
The epilogue concluded by encouraging the reader to love God in order to enjoy the knowledge, life, and love God bestows on those who love and trust Him. The Epistle to Diognetus is an early Christian apologetic work that explains and defends the exclusive truth claims of Christianity as a new religious group among pagans, Jews, and others in the early 2nd century AD. Though its author, recipient, and location remain hidden to us today, its claims inspire confidence in God and in the Christian faith. Thank you for watching this video. Don't forget to like and share, and make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future videos. Athenagoras' plea for the Christians demonstrates a refined philosophical argument defending the cause of persecuted Christians in the later 2nd century church. Little is known of the author himself. Athenagoras' name does not even appear in the work or in Eusebius' ecclesiastical history, which attempted to list major Christian writings in the early church era. However, Athenagoras' style is distinct as someone with extensive training in the philosophy of Plato and in Greco-Roman rhetoric. Athens itself was well known as a center for politics and education during the golden era of classical Greece. Following the Roman invasion of 146 BC, Athens' emphasis on philosophical education continued well into the next few centuries. Christian apologists, that is, those who defended and explained the Christian faith, commonly used Greco-Roman rhetoric to support their cause and argue for human rights to be extended to the Christian community. Apologists also corrected misconceptions about what non-Christians believed in matters of Christian faith and practice. Athenagoras' plea was addressed to Emperor Marcus Aurelius and his son Commodus. Since these two co-ruled the Roman Empire from AD 176 to 180, it's likely the plea for the Christians was written to address an outbreak of Christian persecution in the year 177. A plea for the Christians begins by reminding the emperors that they had allowed the indigenous people they ruled to continue their own religious practices, no matter how absurd those practices may have seemed to the Roman mind. Therefore, their entire empire experienced peace, all except for the Christians who were being persecuted, not because they did anything wrong, but because they simply bore the name Christian. Since no other people had been persecuted merely because they claimed the name of their founder or religion, it was unethical for anyone to persecute Christians merely for bearing the name of Christ. Athenagoras next addressed three main accusations, of which the Christians in his day had been falsely accused. First, they were being falsely accused of atheism. Now, this may sound strange to the modern ear to hear anyone accuse Christianity of being an atheistic religion. However, the word atheism was used to refer to the fact that Christians did not believe in a god they could see with their eyes, especially in the form of an idol, planet, or stars. Athenagoras explained that Christians do acknowledge the existence of God, but only one God, the maker of the universe, who himself is uncreated. Athenagoras explained that followers of Zeus did not see him, but recognized his works on the earth, so why were the followers of Zeus not also called atheists? Even Christians' monotheism, or belief in one God, was commonly upheld by philosophers like Philolaus, Lysis, Opsimus, Pythagoras, Plato, Aristotle, and the Stoics. Athenagoras explained logically it would be impossible for two or more gods to exist, because then one or more of them would have to be incomplete or imperfect. To be truly God, he must have pre-existed matter and brought matter into being. Citing the words of their own poets, Athenagoras reminded his readers that their gods were described as ugly, nonsensical, ridiculous, rude, and stupid. The early church apologists, even under fear of persecution, spoke boldly and were not worried about offending the sensitivities of their readers when making spirit-led, logical points in their arguments. Athenagoras explained that idols, who have no ability to live or move, must wait on their followers to move them. Thus, they were no gods, for they were weak. The second false accusation against Christians was that they participated in Thyestean feasts. In other words, they were accusing the Christians of being cannibals. Again, this may sound strange to the modern ear, but the false accusation was made based on a literal understanding of the celebration of the Eucharist. Jesus taught his followers to continue a ceremony in which bread and wine were consumed as reminders of the sacrificial death of Jesus' body and blood, respectively. 
Athenagoras explained that Christians would have to kill someone before eating them literally, and since Christians abhor death and all violence, it would be impossible for this to happen in the first place. This included drug-induced abortions, which Christians considered to be murder. They believed the fetus to be a human being in an early developmental stage and therefore the object of God's care. They also believed that people who gave birth to babies and then abandoned them on their doorsteps, a deplorable yet common practice in those days, were also guilty of infanticide. The third false accusation against Christians was that they were engaging in group sex or polyamory because of their referring to their loving one another. Athenagoras explained that because Christians were so focused on the next life, they couldn't bring themselves willfully to sin. They didn't believe they would merely cease to exist or be annihilated when they died. Therefore, they lived their current lives with a motivation to enter the next life without shame. He also explained that Christians took their sexual purity so far that they believed lust is the ethical equivalent of adultery. They took their sexual purity so far that they believed even sex in marriage was solely for the purpose of procreation rather than indulging physical appetites. And taking a second wife, regardless of whether the first wife was still alive or dead, was also a form of adultery. Beyond defending Christian behavior, Athenagoras reminded his readers that the false accusers and even their gods were guilty of sexual sins too. In conclusion, Athenagoras asked Marcus Aurelius and Commodus to reconsider the accusations as false and see Christians, instead, as people who pray for them and the peace and prosperity of the empire. In this classic apologetic letter, Athenagoras refuted three false accusations, demonstrated the superiority of Christian monotheism to the polytheism of their false accusers, and assured the emperor and his son that Christians were beneficial to them and to the Roman Empire. Thank you for watching this video. Don't forget to like and share, and make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future videos. In central Italy, one will find the city of Rome, about 20 miles inland from the Tyrrhenian Sea, along the Tiber River. Rome itself has a deep and rich history, and played an indispensable role in the formation of Western Christianity. In about 2000 BC, the first settlers of what would become Rome migrated southward across the Alps into northern Italy, and then further south into the region of Rome. The Villanovans and then the Etruscans settled the area in 1000 and 800 BC respectively lending their religious, political, and artistic influences to central Italy. Roman poets and historians trace the city's official history to 753 BC, when Romulus and Remus were said to have founded it. From that time forward, there were various forms of government, including a republic, oligarchy, monarchy, and eventually an empire, as Roman armies conquered much of the Mediterranean world. The Western Roman Empire lasted until AD 476, and the Eastern Roman, or Byzantine Empire, lasted another millennium until 1453. Since the city of Rome was the center of trade and politics for the Roman Empire in the mid-first century AD, many Christians poured into and out of the empire's capital with news of Jesus and the gospel. Rome had its own gods for centuries, though, and there were plenty of Greek gods and religious influences throughout the city and empire. A large Jewish population already existed in the city, sparked by Pompey's bringing many Jews to Rome as slaves after he conquered Judea in 63 BC. From Luke's account in his Acts of the Apostles, one can see a pattern of early Christian missionaries beginning their work in the synagogues before extending on to the Gentiles. Paul had not yet visited Rome when he wrote to the Christians there in the AD mid-50s. However, the Christian population in Rome, who struggled with her identity among her Jewish counterparts, was significant enough to warrant the writing of his epistle. Christians had certainly grown significant enough in number in Rome to receive unwanted attention among the other groups of the city. In AD 64, a terrible fire broke out within the city walls, damaging 10 of the city's 14 regions. Emperor Nero unjustly accused the Christians of setting the fire, though many contemporaries suspected Nero of setting it himself to clear the way for his own construction plans. 
According to Clement, the fourth bishop of Rome, Peter and Paul were martyred in Rome, along with many other Christians. From that time forward, in Rome and elsewhere in the Roman Empire, Christians experienced persecution merely for claiming the name of Christ. The earliest Roman Christians did not have a centralized location where they met, but instead they met in private houses. As a matter of fact, the first building anywhere designated for primary use as a church was in the early 3rd century, in Dura Europas, on the eastern edge of the Roman Empire. There's no indication that the earliest Roman Christians operated under the authority of a single bishop. A strong version of the monoepiscopacy, that is, singular bishop, would develop later in the 2nd century. These smaller house churches were led by their own presbyters, or elders. Within the city of Rome, there were numerous external challenges to the Christian faith from the local Roman, Greek, and Eastern religions. However, there were also theological challenges within the church. It's likely that the practice of the monoepiscopacy in Rome was spurred on by a. such theological challenges, b. the desire to coordinate efforts to help the poor, and c. communication with other bishops around the Christian world. Because Rome's position in the Western Roman Empire was unparalleled, the Roman bishop's position in the Western Church would also become important. The bishop of the Roman Church took the title of Pope from the Latin word Papa, or Father. As the Roman Empire began to split into two halves in the 4th century, Rome became the main focal point of Western Church leadership, while Constantinople became the main focal point of Eastern Church leadership. When Rome fell to the Vandals in the year 455, it was not so much a singular event as it was the final event in a few decades of decline. In the wake of a strong, singular, secular leader in Rome, the popes of Rome frequently stepped into roles normally reserved for secular governments. Rome would remain the main focal point of what would be known as Roman Catholicism up to the modern era. Thank you for watching this video. Don't forget to like and share, and make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future videos. Justin Martyr was one of the first Christian apologists of the early church. An apologist is someone who defends or explains the Christian faith. He is sometimes known as Justin the Philosopher and Martyr because he was the earliest example of a Christian who was a philosopher but used his philosophical training to argue for the legitimacy of Christian thought as supreme to Judaism and the philosophies of his day. He also met death in AD 165. Justin was born in the town of Flavius Neapolis sometime between AD 100 and 110. The city of his birth is near the Old Testament town of Shechem and is now called Nablus in Israel. He was raised in a pagan family, being the son of Priscus and the grandson of Bacchius. Justin was not Jewish, but Jewish people occupied Judea to the south and Galilee to the north from where he was raised. Justin was an eager student. There were no traditional schools in singular locations as there are today. Students would sit under a single teacher who represented a specific school of thought. Justin first learned under a Stoic teacher, but the Stoics seemed to emphasize ethics more than knowing about God. Stoics thought it frivolous to speculate about whether or not God knew people directly. Justin next sought to learn from a peripatetic teacher, or one who taught about life through the lens of Aristotle. However, Justin found that teacher to be more interested in collecting tuition than educating his students. Justin then tried out a Pythagorean teacher, but that teacher asked his students to study music, astronomy, and geometry before getting to the weightier matters of God. Justin had no patience for a longer process. Therefore, Justin moved on and found a teacher of Platonism. This is where he first enjoyed learning about metaphysical reality. However, even the teacher of Platonism couldn't hold his attention for long. One day, in about AD 133, Justin found himself walking in a field not far from the seashore, when an anonymous older Christian man entered into a conversation with Justin. The Christian man shook the confidence of the young Justin by pointing out how the Hebrew prophets were older and wiser than Justin's favorite philosophers, and those prophets had personally witnessed God's interaction with the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Justin thought and prayed much about the matter. As a result, Justin converted to Christianity, but continued to wear a philosopher's clothes. 
He never took on a position of church leadership, but he functioned as a teacher of Christianity, much like his rivals from the most prominent philosophical schools. We next find Justin in Rome, which had an overall population near 1 million in the mid-2nd century. There was no centralized leader of the churches in Rome, or one centralized location in which all Christians met. Instead, there were various house churches or other small groups meeting in various places, led by presbyters or elders, and served by deacons. It was easy for heresy to creep into some of the Roman house churches, so Justin's teaching on the traditional faith from the scriptures, as handed down by the apostles and their disciples, was invaluable to the establishment of Christian orthodoxy. During Justin's time in Rome, he met and debated the heretic Marcion. Marcion taught that the New Testament contradicted the Old Testament. Justin held that the New Testament fulfilled the Old Testament. There had been surges of persecution of Christians in Rome, but since AD 110, when Emperor Trajan wrote a letter to Pliny the Elder, those persecutions had been local, but not citywide or empire-wide. In about the year AD 153, Justin submitted a petition to Emperor Antonius Pius on behalf of the Christians in the empire, who were being persecuted and even martyred, not because the Christians committed any crimes against Roman citizens or the empire, but because the Christians would neither renounce the name of Jesus Christ nor worship the emperor. Justin turned a typical petition into a longer apologetic work to explain and defend the Christian faith. Most petitions to the emperor were 15 times shorter than Justin's first apology. A second apology also exists, but scholars are not in agreement as to whether the second apology should be considered as a separate work from the first apology, or merely an appendix to the first apology. Either way, the second apology was written shortly after the first apology and is a little more philosophical in nature than the first apology. We next find Justin in Ephesus, a major cultural and political center in Asia Minor. It was there that Justin engaged an educated Jewish scholar and escapee of the Bar Kokhba War, who was named Trifo. A carefully edited account of their two-day discussion was published as Justin's longest still existing work, Dialogue with Trifo the Jew. In the Apologies, Justin had defended Christians against outrageous accusations and explained Christian beliefs and practices. In the Dialogue, Justin explained the superiority of Christianity to Judaism. Shortly thereafter, Justin reappeared in Rome and continued teaching Christians and debating non-Christian teachers in the city. One of his students, Tatian, would become a well-known Christian philosopher and apologist who wrote a biographical account of Justin's work in Rome. According to Eusebius, Justin angered an anti-Christian teacher in Rome by the name of Crescens. Justin's student, Tatian, described Crescens' love of money and his hate for Justin, who bested Crescens in debates in Rome. Crescens convinced a local leader by the name of Junius Rusticus to convene a tribunal to hear Justin's case, along with six other Christians, and try them for crimes against the state. Justin and the six refused to renounce Jesus Christ, to worship the Roman emperor, or bend in any other sinful way. The seven Christians were whipped and eventually beheaded. Justin's last words were, We desire nothing more than to suffer for our Lord Jesus Christ, for this gives us salvation and joyfulness before his dreadful judgment seat, at which all the world must appear. Christians remember well a statement that Justin had made in his first apology a decade earlier than his trial. And you, you can kill us, but you cannot hurt us. Justin Martyr's life and legacy are celebrated by the Eastern Orthodox Church and Roman Catholic Church every year on June 1st. Thank you for watching this video. Don't forget to like and share, and make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future videos. Justin Martyr's first apology was addressed to Emperor Adrianus, his sons Verissimus and Lucius, and the Roman Senate. It is written according to the common petition form of Roman literature of the mid-2nd century AD. However, the first apology is about 15 times the length of a normal petition to the emperor. Justin used the standard petition as a means to present a more comprehensive apologetic of the Christian faith. When using the word apology in this context, one is referring to a defense or explanation of the Christian faith. Justin wrote his first apology to ask for a fair treatment of Christians who had been persecuted in the Roman Empire for over a century. The first apology was written either in the AD 140s or 150s, 
Justin begins his first apology by reminding his readers that ethical rulers will carefully examine and fairly judge all matters before them. If Christians are guilty of breaking any laws or committing any crimes, they should be justly punished. But if Christians are falsely accused, why are the false accusers not punished? The first section of the apology, consisting of chapters 4 through 12, is a critique of how Christians were being falsely accused and mistreated in the Roman Empire. The most prominent injustice Justin addressed was Christians being punished merely because they claimed the name of Christ. True, Christians would never deny the name of Jesus Christ, so there were many instances in which Christian trials consisted of nothing more than verifying the Christians were indeed claiming to be Christians. The second most prominent false accusation was that Christians were supposedly atheists. The word atheism simply means no God. So Justin defended Christians against the simplest form of this accusation by claiming that Christians cannot rightly be referred to as atheists if their entire faith is based on the one true God. It is the adherents of Greek, Roman, and Eastern religions who are atheists, in a sense, because they do not believe in the one true God. They believe in multiple spiritual beings who are just demons, deceiving human minds to distract people from knowing the one true God. The third most prominent false accusation was that Christians were supposedly disloyal citizens to the Roman Empire. Justin argued that Christians, to the contrary, were excellent citizens of the Roman Empire. Christians prayed for and worked toward peace in the empire. Christians did recognize the kingdom of God as not being of this world, so there is no direct competition between the two. Christians are focused on eternity, not merely the present time. The second and much longer section of Justin's first apology, consisting of chapters 13 through 68, is an explanation and justification of Christian faith and life. In a sense, Justin is turning his thoughts from a negative apologetic to a positive one from defending Christians against false accusations to a description of what Christians do. He begins this second section with some basic teachings of Christ. Christians do not engage in sexually inappropriate behavior because their goal is to love one another purely without lust. Even sex in marriage is only for the purpose of procreation. Jesus taught his followers to love their enemies and pray for them, unlike the enemies of Christians who only seek to harm Christians. Christians follow Jesus' teaching when they speak and live the truth clearly. Under these circumstances, no oaths need to be made, just simply speaking the truth. Jesus also taught his followers to pay taxes and pray for rulers to make sound judgments. Jesus Christ is the main focus of Christianity. When Christians speak of Jesus rising from the dead, it should not seem strange to philosophers, for those philosophers have themselves written about an afterlife. Christians also bore witness to the miracles of Jesus Christ and believed what was written about him ahead of time. Prophets and other biblical authors like Moses, David, Isaiah, Micah, and Ezekiel predicted Jesus' conception and birth, miracles, manner of death, resurrection, ascension, future and second coming, and final judgment. They also spoke of Jesus appearing as the voice of the angel of the Lord speaking to Moses in the burning bush in the third chapter of Exodus. Justin claims that any genuine insight the philosophers and poets had into spiritual realities was first proclaimed by the prophets of the Old Testament. These philosophers and poets, right or wrong, did address the notion of creation as well as the descent, birth, death, and ascent of Jesus Christ. Any false information they had about creation, God, or the world was due to the influence of demons. This includes misdirected worship, ideas about people becoming gods, and the gall to accuse Christians of the same immoral sexual behavior the accusers themselves were committing. Justin also criticizes the Stoic idea of fate. He argues that people and angels have free will, so they are worthy of praise and blame according to their actions. We also learn about Christians' regular forms of worship in the mid-2nd century church. For example, baptisms were preceded by prayer and fasting, involved a washing, called regeneration, in the triune name of God, and were considered to impart a greater degree of awareness of spiritual matters. The Eucharist, that is, the ceremonial eating of bread and drinking of wine in memory of the sacrifice of Jesus' body and blood on the cross, is to be celebrated only by people who have already been baptized. Christians, who are able, help those in need, such as orphans, widows, the sick, prisoners, and travelers. Beyond that, Christians meet together on Sundays to listen, learn, and pray. As a final appeal in his first apology, Justin boldly warns the emperor, 
do not decree death against those who have done no wrong, as you would against enemies. For we forewarn you that you will not escape the coming judgment of God if you continue in your injustice. Appended to the end of the petition are a few official letters regarding withholding persecution from Christians based on the writing of Emperors Hadrian, Antoninus, and Marcus Aurelius. The relationship of Justin's second apology to his first apology is somewhat unclear. However, the second apology is widely accepted as also being written by Justin and not long after the first apology. Perhaps Justin added to his first apology in a further appeal that required a few extra details. The second apology is not nearly as long as the first apology and is a bit more academic or philosophical in its tone. The second apology includes a detailed account of a pagan couple in Rome who were in a bad and sinful marriage. The wife became a Christian, began behaving well, and wanted her husband to do the same. The husband refused and lived such a sinful life that his wife felt she had no choice but to apply for a divorce. The husband was upset at his ex-wife, but when the divorce was final, his only recourse was to accuse her teacher in the matters of Christianity of being a Christian. The teacher admitted being a Christian and was thrown into prison. A bystander named Lucius objected to the teacher's being thrown into prison, so Lucius, also being a Christian, was thrown into prison. Likewise, a third person who came forward admitting to being a Christian was thrown into prison. Justin himself expected to be thrown into prison as well because a proud Stoic named Crescens was looking for an occasion to have Justin punished. Crescens did not bother to read about or otherwise become familiar with Christianity, but that did not stop Crescens from opposing Justin and other Christians. Justin claimed that accusations against Christians were the work of demons who had been procreated by fallen male angels and human women long ago. For that matter, all hatred for people who lived reasonable and earnest lives and shunned evil was incited by these same demons. People who hated Christians extended their hate to any of the Christians' children and employees too. The people responsible for the punishment of Christians themselves participated in wicked behavior and thus demonstrated the greatest of hypocrisies. The demons were influencing the world to hate people who were good. The demons and people who followed them in their wickedness would burn in hell, but Christians do not fear death. Justin's final appeal in his second apology was that it be published and distributed widely because the people of the world want to know what is good and what is evil. Thank you for watching this video. To keep Theology Academy videos free, please consider making a tax-deductible donation at www.theology-academy.org donate. The philosopher and Christian apologist known as Justin Martyr lived in the early second century AD. After he became a Christian, he traveled around in a philosopher's robe and taught and sometimes debated people about God and Christianity. In about AD 135, he was walking on a road he referred to as the Zestus in Ephesus. It was here that he met a man named Trypho, who identified himself as a Hebrew, having escaped from the war, referring to the Bar Kokhba rebellion. Justin and Trypho agreed that the pursuit of God is a philosopher's highest calling, and spent two days discussing Jewish and Christian ideas of God and the life of his people. The written form of their dialogue was published 20 or 25 years after it happened sometime after Justin wrote his first and second apologies, but before he was martyred in AD 165. Justin's dialogue with Trypho consists of four sections. The first section, which comprises chapters 2 through 8, is an introduction in which Justin gives a detailed narrative of his own intellectual development and conversion to Christianity. Justin told Trypho that Justin unsuccessfully tried to learn about God from a Stoic teacher, a Peripatetic teacher, a Pythagorean teacher, and a Platonist teacher, before Justin had a life-changing conversion with a wise old Christian man in a field near the seashore. Justin claimed that God used that conversation to spark Justin's interest in divine matters as related by the prophets of the Old Testament. Trypho's friends, who were listening nearby, just laughed at Justin. Trypho was more respectful, but told Justin that if he wanted to learn about God, he needed to be circumcised, observe Sabbath and new moon ordinances, and follow all the law of Moses. The second section of the dialogue with Trypho explains the Christian perspective on the Old Testament. 
Trifle wanted to know why Christians do not follow the Jewish laws of circumcision, fasts, feasts, clothing, and so on. Justin replied that those laws were given to ancient Israel as a temporary punishment for their sinfulness and stubbornness. God instructed a circumcision of the flesh to punish the wicked people of Israel. But what God intended all along was that the people circumcise their hearts in a spiritual way and follow God in love. Many people before Abraham and many more after him will be in heaven despite not having been circumcised in the flesh. The dietary laws were enacted in response to the golden calf incident and are not to be applied to all people who trust in God. God was not pleased with Israel's fasting when their hearts were not set in the right direction. Trifo also asked why Christians would highly esteem a man who was crucified, because such a death is a sign of failure. Justin responded that Jesus came the first time as a sacrifice for the sins of the world, which necessitated his death in the place of humans, which animal sacrifices could not accomplish. Although Justin's explanation of how Jesus could be God and man simultaneously, without conflict, or creating a second deity, lacked the theological precision of later councils and theologians, he did reference Psalm 110 verse 1 as proof that the Christ is God. That verse reads, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. While the Jews did well to recognize that there is only one God, they failed to recognize Jesus the Christ as the recipient of God's words in this verse. Jesus, the Son of God, was equally divine with God the Father, yet they were one being. Likewise, Isaiah 53 portrayed the Christ as a suffering servant. So Trifo's question about Christ's success was answered by Isaiah 53. Justin also pointed out a handful of types or symbols of Christ found in Old Testament prophecies. The second coming will be about the Father's putting all Christ's enemies under his feet, like a footstool, as a sign of the Christ's victory overall. The third section of the dialogue with Trifo justifies the adoration of Jesus as God. Justin begins by explaining that John the Baptist was the new Elijah who proclaimed the first coming of Christ. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on a young donkey the week before his crucifixion fulfilled the prophecy of Zechariah. Throughout this section, Trifo insists that Justin is referring to two different gods, but Justin gives examples in the Old Testament of Jesus' existence before he was conceived of a virgin. Examples include the mysterious angel of the Lord in Abraham's visitor in Genesis 18, Jacob's wrestling opponent in Genesis 31, and the burning bush with Moses in Exodus 3. The son was also being referred to in Genesis 1 when the father said, let us make humankind in our image. Justin explained that the son is begotten from the father as a fire is begotten from another fire with the same substance and properties, but now in two distinct forms. Justin accused Jewish scribes and rabbis of misinterpreting or removing important passages of scripture, which is the same thing the devil himself does. Justin claimed that the gifts of handling the scriptures properly were passed on from the prophets in the Old Testament to the Christians of their own era. Though death on a cross is repugnant to Trifo, Justin listed various types of crosses that were found in the Old Testament, which pointed to the kind of death that Christ would endure. Justin further explained that any curse Christ experienced was on our behalf because we as sinners deserve a curse. To verify that Jesus is the Christ, God raised Jesus from the dead after three days in a similar manner to Jonah's being in the stomach of a large fish for three days. In the fourth section of the dialogue with Trifo, Justin teaches that people from every nation who believe in the Christ and follow his teaching represent the new Israel. The prophecy in Micah 4 and Zechariah 2 through 3 predicts how Gentiles will flow into Jerusalem in the end times, where Christ will be reigning as king, and they will be blessed by him there. The Jewish rabbis did not rightly divide the advents of Christ into one in the first century and another in the end times. The Jewish rabbis also ignored the significance of Joshua's name being the Hebrew form of the Greek name Jesus, and the things Joshua did as a prototype of Jesus. Christians who see the predictions of Christ in the Old Testament do so only with the gracious help of the Holy Spirit. Christians have become the true Israel and the sons of God, the heirs of the promises God made to Abraham through the descendants of Jacob. The Israelites were the sons of Jacob by the flesh, but the Christians were the sons of Jacob by faith and the Spirit. 
Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trifo the Jew demonstrates a biblical and philosophical approach to the relationship between Jewish adherence to the Mosaic law and Christian faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Thank you for watching this video. Don't forget to like and share, and make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future videos. Irenaeus claimed when he was young, he listened to Polycarp teach in Smyrna of Asia Minor. Polycarp had listened to the Apostle John teach when Polycarp himself was young. This means that Irenaeus got to hear reliable accounts of Jesus' life and teaching from eyewitnesses. Although the detail of Irenaeus' birth are unknown, it's plausible that Irenaeus was a native of Smyrna and was born sometime in the AD 130s or even 140s. After a brief time of studying in Rome, Irenaeus headed across the Alps to Lugdunum of Gaul, now known as Lyon, France. Lyon has always been an important center of trade in the region of southeastern France. There was a large Celtic population there when Julius Caesar conquered Gaul in 52 BC. Nine years later, a former lieutenant in Caesar's army, Manatius Plancus, built and settled a military post there at the intersection of a few roads and the rivers Rhone and Saone. From that time until the mid-3rd century AD, Lyon remained the most important city in northwest Europe. In addition to the Celtic gods worshipped in Lyon, the Romans paid special tribute to Mercury, Apollo, Hercules, and Jupiter at that location. Christianity was first found in Lyon by the mid-2nd century AD, as merchants and missionaries passed through Lyon and settled among the inhabitants. In about AD 150, Polycarp sent a man named Pothinus to Lyon to found a church at that location. Pothinus was the first bishop of Lyon. When Irenaeus arrived at Lyon to become one of the church's presbyters, in about AD 170, the local church was still new, and Christians faced intense persecution. The Church of Lyon sent Irenaeus to Rome in 177 on their behalf to discuss with the young bishop Eleutherius how much toleration should be shown to the Montanists and their heresy in Asia Minor. The Montanists were a sect within the church in Asia Minor who highly valued prophetic revelation, a high standard of morals, and the belief that the Lord was going to return at any moment to Pepuza, an ancient town in Phrygia, Asia Minor, where the Montanists had their headquarters. When Irenaeus returned to Lyon from Rome in the year 178, he was deeply grieved to discover that a mass martyrdom had claimed the lives of almost 50 Christians and greatly grieved the church in that location. Among the martyrs were a slave girl named Blandina and a man named Sanctus, whose stories of martyrdom are famous to this day. Also among the martyrs was Pothinus, the church's bishop. Upon Irenaeus's return, Irenaeus was promptly named as Pothinus's replacement. Irenaeus would remain bishop of Lyon for a quarter of a century. As bishop, Irenaeus chose missionaries to send throughout Gaul to spread the gospel among the Celts and Romans, in addition to encouraging and organizing those Christians scattered throughout the region. Irenaeus believed that the largest threat to the growth of the church in Gaul was the group of heresies which later became known as Gnosticism. Although their beliefs varied greatly, they commonly held the notion that physical matter is evil, and the goal of this life is to escape the physical world and rejoin the spiritual one. They denied the physical humanity of Jesus and were promoting themselves as the only true Christians, instead of the established church. Irenaeus' most important literary work is his Against Heresies, in which he exposes the folly of Gnostic claims and clearly explains the Christian doctrine that was practiced in all churches everywhere, east, west, north, and south. As a result, Irenaeus' work remains of the greatest importance for the knowledge of the Gnostic systems and the theology of the early church, and he deserves to be called the founder of Christian theology. Another matter of practical theological disagreement within the global church in the late 2nd century was the question of when exactly Christians should celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is referred to as the Cortodeciman controversy. The Eastern churches, following the instructions of the Apostle John and Polycarp of Smyrna, tended to celebrate the crucifixion of Christ on the same day as Jews celebrated the Passover, even if that date fell on a different day of the week than Sunday. The Western churches, especially Rome, to distinguish themselves from the Jews, adopted a different dating system, so the resurrection of Christ was always celebrated on the Sunday following Passover. Irenaeus, living up to the meaning of his name, Peaceful, 
wrote a letter to Pope Victor in the year 190, urging Victor to allow the Eastern bishops to remain in good fellowship with the Western Church, even though there were two different ideas of when to celebrate the death and resurrection of Christ. Irenaeus later wrote a theological work entitled The Demonstration of Apostolic Preaching, and at least four other writings that were lost and are only known by references from Eusebius are attributed to him. These include On the Ox Code, On the Subject of Knowledge, On the Monarchy, and On Easter. Irenaeus died in about AD 202. Later accounts suggested he died a martyr's death during the reign of Marcus Aurelius, but no mention of such a death was made until Gregory of Tours wrote a history of the Franks in the 6th century. Lyon was a crucial center of Christianity in Gaul. Thanks especially to the ministry and writing of Irenaeus, the town of Lyon will forever be associated with early French missionary work and Orthodox theology in response to the Gnostic crisis of the 2nd century. Thank you for watching this video. Don't forget to like and share, and make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future videos. In AD 178, when Irenaeus was appointed by the Christians in Lyons to be their church's bishop or overseer, he had at least three enormous tasks in front of him. One, many families in his congregation were grieving the losses of nearly 50 martyrs from the previous year. Two, the gospel needed to be spread into the region surrounding Lyons, where people were polytheists or atheists, or the Christians needed their local churches to be organized. Three, there were discussions and disagreements between Eastern and Western Christians regarding how to respond to heretical groups claiming to be Christians, who were seeking to gain converts away from the universal church. Among the heretical groups who were falsely identifying as Christians were those later referred to as Gnostics. The word Gnostic derives from the Greek word gnosis, which translates in the English to knowledge. Although the Gnostics were not a single group, they did share some general theological tendencies. Irenaeus believed the Gnostics presented a serious threat to the correct presentation of the gospel and to the unity of the universal church. He therefore collected as many Gnostic writings as he could find and wrote a detailed expose of Gnostic beliefs and behavior. The full title of Irenaeus's expose is A Refutation and Subversion of Knowledge Falsely So-Called, but in time Christian scholars have shortened the title to Against Heresies. It was written sometime between AD 182 and 186 and is considered to be the best description of Gnosticism from the early church era. Against Heresies is organized into five distinct books. The first book is an exposition of the beliefs and behavior of various Gnostic groups. Of the Gnostics, Irenaeus wrote, These men falsify the teachings of God and prove themselves to be evil interpreters of the good word of Revelation. They also overthrow the faith of many by drawing them away under the pretense of superior knowledge. Modern literary scholars would classify ancient Gnostic literature as fantasies. Gnostic teachers created very elaborate explanations of divine beings known as eons, and how the eons brought into being all non-physical and physical reality in the universe. Gnostics taught that the eons wished to know their origin from their original eon, variously named Proarche, Propator, and Bythus, who had a female counterpart named Aenea, also known as Charis or Sige. The main branch of Gnostics Irenaeus exposed were the Valentinians. The Valentinians taught that there were 30 eons existing in pairs who reproduced successive pairs of male and female eons. The last of them was Sophia, or Knowledge who broke with tradition of ignorance and passionately desired to know the original Eon. Eventually, a being known as the Demiurge, who emanated from Sophia, erred greatly by creating the physical universe. Gnostics identified this foolish Demiurge as the creator god of the Old Testament. The common Christianization of Gnosticism was to portray the god of the Old Testament as evil, and Jesus and his father as good and wise beings, who were trying to rescue the people from the world of their physical natures. Salvation, according to the Gnostics, was the enlightenment one gains by learning the elaborate names and stories behind their beliefs. The enlightenment would allow people to escape the physical world and join a purely spiritual realm, 
or they would be reconnected with the original Eon. Irenaeus did not just expose the overcomplicated Valentinian teachings, though. He described the beliefs of other Gnostic groups, whose names and stories were different from the Valentinians. Most of the groups were nameless, but Irenaeus also exposed the teachings of Gnostics named Secundus, Epiphanes, Ptolemy, Marcus, Simon the Magician from Acts 8, Saturninus, Basilides, Carpocrates, Marcellina, Serinthus, the Ebionites, the Nicolaitans from Revelation 2, 6 and 15, Cerdo, Marcion, and the Encratites. Irenaeus hoped by exposing the mutually inconsistent opinions of the Gnostics to persuade anyone from being seduced by their teaching. If the mere exposure of the confusing overcomplexity in Book 1 did not persuade Irenaeus's readers to avoid Gnostic teaching, Book 2 provided an argument that the Gnostics used poor logic to arrive at their conclusions. For example, the very idea of polytheism, or there being multiple gods, is absurd. For if neither of two gods are perfect, then there must be a reality or god greater than they are. Likewise, if angels created the world apart from the will of the greatest eon, then the greatest eon is not really that good, wise, or careful. Irenaeus also pointed out that the teachings of the Gnostics were inconsistent with the rule of faith, which was the consistent and comprehensive teaching about the Trinity, creation, salvation, and other doctrines. Shifting the burden of proof to the Gnostics, he exposes the emptiness of their system, showing that they copied their ideas from pre-existing stories, but just changed the names. They also made extensive use of math to show that numbers which could be added together to arrive at 30 were proof enough that there were 30 eons. One of the chief theological contributions of Irenaeus in his Against Heresies was his doctrine of the atonement, called the recapitulation theory. The recapitulation theory suggests that all parts of Jesus' life on the earth, including any physical suffering he endured, are indispensable to the salvation of other human beings. The recapitulation theory emphasizes God's role as the redeemer of creation, not one who merely wanted to help the spirits imprisoned inside people's flesh to escape. The second book concludes with a refutation of the absurdity of the migration of souls where people might spiritually transfer from one form to another. Finally, books 3, 4, and 5 investigate specific passages of scripture to demonstrate Gnosticism's broad and deep contradictions with a historical understanding of scripture. Throughout the work, Irenaeus shows how faulty the interpretations of scripture by the Gnostics are. No sane scholar would read a piece of literature like the Gnostics read the scriptures. However, in the final three books, Irenaeus reminds his readers of passages in every section of the scriptures and in which ways the passages contradict the most prominent claims of Gnostic theology. By the end of the fifth book, Irenaeus has well demonstrated that the historical events portrayed by the scriptures, especially physical creation and the physical life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, are essential to a proper understanding of the truth, Christianity, and God himself. Irenaeus engages in a negative apologetic, or defense of the faith, when he dismantles the heretical claims of the Gnostics, but he also engages in a positive apologetic when he gives biblical evidence for specific features of God and salvation that directly contradict Gnostic claims. In the end, based on the scriptures and the consistent teaching of the church handed down from Jesus through clear lines of apostles and their disciples, the truth of the gospel can be and is clearly known by the church around the world. Irenaeus not only exposed the fallacies of Gnosticism in his chief work Against Heresies, but he used ideas and language that later theologians would use and develop as they formulated their own theological expressions in writings, creeds, and liturgical formulae.